Welcome to another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. In this week's episode, Greg and I share the feats of strength duties, and then we take a deep dive into some research on how sleep affects performance and body composition. We also have an interview with Dr. Brandon Roberts, who tells us about his current bodybuilding prep, why some people respond better to training than others, and why sleep is so important for people who lift. As always, thank you for listening and enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler. I'm joined today by temporary guest host, Greg Knuckles. Thanks for having me back on. You bet. So Feats of Strength is a fan favorite in terms of our segments, and I am going to let you take it, but I want to get one in first. So there's a pretty lively debate about whether bodybuilding is a great sport or the greatest sport. And I would argue that it is, in fact, the greatest sport. And what that means is that by winning a pro bodybuilding show, that's one of the greatest feats of strength you could really hope to accomplish, um, despite the fact that there's no force being generated. But in this case, we've got one of the all-time greats. The first feat of strength this week is Dexter Jackson. So we record this on like a 45-week time delay. (laughs) So this, (laughs) this happened like approximately a year and a half ago. Um, but no, so J- Dexter Jackson a few weeks ago won the IFBB Tampa Pro. And Dexter, nicknamed The Blade, is an absolute legend. We've talked about him on the show before. But I'm looking at his contest history on Wikipedia. He had a top 10 Olympia finish in 1999. <laughs> a top 10 Olympia finish in 1999 when I was eight years old. Yeah. Think about what you were doing in 1999, and then consider the fact that he is very much in the running to potentially win an Olympia in a few weeks. I was prepping for Y2K. <laughs> I think we all were, and successfully, I would say. I think you you weathered pretty well. Yeah, we, we made it through. Uh, but so, Dexter Jackson, you're incredible. You keep doing it. I don't know how. He's he's 49 years old. He turns he turns 50 like three weeks after the Olympia this year. Yeah. So he's uh, it's just incredible. And, and like and he still looks just as good as ever. He looks he, just as good. Yeah. He looks as good as he looked when he won the Olympia. He he has slightly grayer hair. Yeah. That's it. That That's uh that TMZ clip of him you showed me a few <laughs> months ago is the best. Do you, do you do you want to recap that clip for the listeners? Yeah, so Dexter Jackson, like I don't know him, I don't know anybody that does know him, but he seems very chill and pretty cool. And so like TMZ, they kind of just like swarm famous people and like put a mic in their face and ask him questions. And Dexter's like in his car leaving the gym or something. They're like Dexter, and they start asking him these questions. He's just being like chill. Like you can tell he kind of wants to to go, but he's being nice. And then they're like. Dexter, how'd you get so big? <laughs> he kind of like pauses to think of like... Yeah, it, it, you, you can see the wheels turning. Like, do I admit to a federal felony or like how, how can I answer this question? Yeah, so he's like thinking about how honest he wishes to be. And he just kind of smiles and says like, genetics, bro. <laughs> I think that's what he said, right? Yeah, it was something like that. Then he just drives away, but... In any case, like if Dexter Jackson wins the Olympia, I'm going to be so stoked. It'd be so cool. Yeah, I mean, so uh, God, I'm so bad with names. Who who's the guy who got like 
great bodybuilder from the 90s and got like a special invite to be in the Olympia last year. Kevin Lavroni? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like looked great leading up to it, but then when he stepped on stage, you realized why he had only been sharing pictures of his upper body. Right, yeah. Thing is, like, dude, everyone was freaking out because they're like, man, Kevin Lavroni looks so good for his age. If memory serves, I think he was like 54. So he's not that much older than Dexter Jackson, but like Dexter Jackson still legitimately has a Olympia level physique. Yeah, Lavroni's current age, he turned 55 like two months ago. Yeah. So, I mean, when you, yeah, when you look at other people who were pro bodybuilders that are like three years older than Dexter, yeah, you look at them and you're like, they haven't been in competitive shape in 11 years. Correct. But like Dexter is just winning pro shows still. It's it's crazy. It's nasty. All right. You can take it from here. Yeah. So um, my first feat of strength, more of a, a feat of uh, power and integrated impulse, um, Simone Biles. So I don't know who both listens to this and follows gymnastics, but if you don't, you should because... Gymnasts are so freakishly athletic that I feel so I feel like gymnastics is a natural sport for powerlifters to also be into because powerlifting is essentially just a sport of like raw expression of a single physical characteristic, that being strength. And so it's just, you know, freaky athleticism, not all that much like strategy goes into it, but it's just, you know, what can you do to a bar? And I feel like especially especially floor exercise in gymnastics is kind of similar because like they get points for the little dance bits they get between tumbling passes. But ultimately it's just a question of like how much goddamn power can you put through the floor to vault yourself 15 feet in the air to do crazy shit. And Simone Biles pulled off the first successful triple double um, at gymnastics nationals either last week or two weeks ago, which is two backflips along with three complete rotations in the air, which like if you've never seen gymnastics, the floor that they do floor exercise on um, is like extra springy. So it's not just doing it, you know, off of concrete. But even that being the case, one, being able to launch yourself that high in the air to pull that off is nasty. And then just being able to know where you are in space to be able to land it, it's absolutely absurd. So um, if, if you haven't seen that, you should check it out. It, it's one of the most impressive singular feats of athleticism that I have ever seen. Do you remember, we were probably kids when this happened, wasn't it Tony Hawk trying to do the first 900 that they like made a huge deal of it and it was like under yeah. stadium lights and televised and all that? Yeah. That was crazy, man. This is this I get, it gave me like the same feeling to watch her rotate that many times. Mm-hmm. I remember when Tony Hawk did it back when like everybody played Tony Hawk's Pro Skater Two. Back when it was good. Back when it was awesome. But uh, but no, it's it's just crazy to watch somebody pull something off like that. So if you're also into just rotating things and Tony Hawk, uh, Tony Hawk maybe two or three years ago. Um, he put out a video where he was trying to see if he could still put down a 900 at, I believe, 48 years old. And he failed like 50 times in a row or something, but he eventually put one down. Like, as of a couple years ago, the dude could still do a 900, which 
I want to say to this day, maybe only like five people have. So, I mean, Tony Hawk retired from Vert just to give everyone else a shot. Like, dude, dude would probably still be in, in the running for a bronze medal if, if he wanted to enter a vert at the X Games at 51 years old. Well, if he was Dexter Jackson, he would be <laughs> just approaching his prime. Yeah, so you can look at this one of two ways. Either Tony Hawk is the Dexter Jackson of skateboarding, or Dexter Jackson is the Tony Hawk of bodybuilding. Both sound good to me. Sure. Um, weren't we going to discuss what sport Simone Biles should actually be competing in? Yeah, I mean, so we we had talked about this previously, and I think it's a shame that she's wasting her talents on gymnastics when she I if you watch her floor routine, it's very clear she should she could be a top level figure competitor, and so to see her spinning her wheels following this gymnastics stuff stuff is kind of a shame, and I hope she'll come to her senses and make the transition. See, I disagree. Uh, she also appears to have quite long arms combined with the fact that she's like three foot 10. So I look at her and I think world-class sumo deadlifter. She may have, she may be the first person to, to acquire the legendary two inch range of motion. Um, and I mean, if she can apply enough force to do a triple double, one has to assume that she can deadlift at least five, 600 pounds if she applied herself to it. And she is like a ball of muscle. Yeah. But here's the thing. When it comes to sports selection, you have to consider what you're, what you're likely to be good at, but also what does the most good for society. Powerlifting. And that would be figure. It's, ab- it's absolutely powerlifting. <laughs> no, I mean, America, we, we get our identity from our top-level figure competitors. Like, that's how we... No. Absolutely, yeah. No. When, when people are sitting around a 4th of July barbecue and they're talking about America's great national treasures and national heroes, you know, people are going to bring up names like Blaine Sumner and John Hack, uh, reminisce about the days of Ed Cohn and Captain Kirk. That that is where America derives its sense of place in the world. No, you're wrong because they they put the Fourth of July right when Olympia preps are starting, <laughs> so that you. Can, that's why they put it there. It's also around the time IPF World preps are starting. Mm. We'll, we'll, or, or we'll no, talk about no, this no, no, no. USAPL Nationals. That's the one in October. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll sort it out later. Sure. All right, who else did strong things? <laughs> okay, so on to, to actual traditional feats of strength. Um, Nate McCool became the first teenager to total 2,100 um, in competition last week. So there was there had previously been two people total 2,000 as teenagers, maybe three. Um, ah, dang it, what's his name? I'm blanking on the name. The really, they were both Texans. Um, Mark Ripito? No, no, no. But that does jog my memory. One of them was Mark Henry. Okay. Uh, legendary powerlifter, switched over to weightlifting. Very good at that as well. He was the first person to total 2,000 as a teenager. I forget the most recent guy's name, but but talking about uh, selecting sports. So in Texas, like powerlifting is an off-season sport that a lot of the football players do to get stronger for football during the off-season. And I forget the guy's name, but another Texas high schooler totaled 2,000 as, uh, as an 18-year-old. And so many people were like, oh my God, he's going to be a perennial IPF champion. And he's like, no, psych, I'm going to play 
football at Baylor and try to make it to the NFL. And everyone, there were a bunch of people on Reddit being like, ah, this guy's wasting his talents. <laughs> I was like, come on, man. But they meant it, not like us. <laughs> I think a couple of them were actually sincere. Where It's like, ah, man, just imagine how good he could have been. And he's like, yeah. and he's probably imagining like his rookie contract where he's going to make at least like $5 million if he makes the NFL. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, Nate McCool, 2100 total at 19 years old. Absolutely insane. Similarly insane is uh, Eric Lewis, total 2300 at 20 years old, which is absolutely absurd. Um, so that is not that many humans have totaled 2300. So the fact that he's doing it at 23 years old is incredibly impressive. And he's also seemingly progressing at a pretty quick rate. Um, he just totaled his first 2200 in March of this year. So how old is he again? 20 years old, 20 years old. Okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, still young, still improving very quickly. Um, I mean, I- anyone touching 2,400 is among the best like three or four guys in the world. And so he's still super young and, and coming hard at that. So that's also just unbelievably impressive. The feat of strength recently that I think probably got the most press is that John Hack recently totaled... 907 and a half kilos or just north of 2000 pounds at 181 um which again is absurd i remember when jesse norris did that back in the day everyone was freaking out and you know now that's moved down to the 181 class so at this rate of progress we're going to see a 2000 total at 165 in like four years which will probably just make me jump off a bridge i don't know why you're looking at me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh, so one one thing that I want to make sure doesn't go unmentioned here as well is that two people actually broke the 2,000 pound mark at 181 uh, last weekend. Both John Hack and Cody Blazik did. So Hack did it with knee sleeves. Blazik did it with wraps. But both of them broke the 2,000 pound mark. Obviously, Hacks is more impressive because knee wraps do obviously help you lift more um but yeah both of them broke that milestone i've seen a bunch of people talking about hack virtually no one talking about cody blazik so props to him as well one thing i want to just note though um about (laughs) about just how stupid uh stupid meaning impressive both of those totals were is that um so the the highest total at 181 without wraps that had been done previously, I believe, was Alexi Nikulin uh, did 825 kilos, which is less than that. I, I I think it's like 1820, give or take. So hacks like 200 pounds ahead of his closest competition in that weight class without knee wraps, which is stupid. Like, he's he's 10% better than anyone he's competing against. Now, obviously, like, Cody Blazek probably doesn't get 200 pounds out of his knee wraps. So that class as a whole is improving, but, like, both of those guys are just eating everyone else for breakfast these days. Um, 
So circling back to where we started, talking about Dexter Jackson, still awesome, uh, aging like a fine wine. Someone else who is doing that is David Ricks, who recently turned 60 years old and squatted uh, a shade over 600 for a set of five as like his 60th birthday present to himself, which is ridiculous. That's a very normal way for one to celebrate one's 60th birthday. Um, and if you don't know who David Ricks is, like one, you should, the dude's a legend, but two, he's not a huge guy either. He competes in the, the 90, the 93 kilo class. So we're not talking like a super heavyweight squatting 600 for a set of five for their 60th birthday, like normal size dude, which again, ridiculously impressive. Okay. So down to our last three recent feats of strength. Uh, Kevin O'Coley, more commonly known as Kevin Oak, recently broke both the squat record and the total record in the 242 class without knee wraps, untested. So the squat breaks uh, Amit Sapir's record in that weight class, and the total record breaks Larry Wheels' record. So he squatted uh, 380 kilos, which is 837 pounds. And totaled 987.5 kilos, which is 2,177 pounds. Again, both world records, crazy impressive. I am personally probably the most excited there that he broke the squat record because, um, so two squat records ago in that weight class was Captain Kirk. Kirk Karwaski squatted 375 kilos, which, you know, Captain Kirk was a a consummate squatter. His squats were always fantastic. Then that record got broken in maybe like 2014 or so by Amit Sapir, who, to his credit, is a very, very strong guy, um, held the world record for the squat in four weight classes simultaneously from 181 all the way up to 242, which is impressive. But what was maybe a little bit less impressive was his squat depth for most of those records. <laughs> so, um, uh, it, Oak squat had very, uh, unquestionable depth. So it's, it's good to see that record become more legitimate again. Um, next feat of strength, Ryuki Fujimoto, 19 year old bencher from Japan, uh, benched 260 kilos recently. That's 573 pounds. He is, I'm pretty sure, an IPF competitor, which you don't see that many benches in the IPF sniffing at 600. So that's, one, super impressive, just the sheer weight. Two, the fact that he's only 19 years old. And three, it seems like he may be transitioning from equipped bench, uh, but this kid's just an absolute phenom when it comes to the bench press. I think the first exposure people had to him is back in 2016 when he was 16 years old. A video of him surfaced doing a gym lift in a single ply bench shirt at 405 kilos, which is 890 pounds, <laughs> which <laughs> I don't think he's ever done that much in competition, but like I mean, he he did it. There was video of it. Yeah. So it's it's been clear for a while that, that this kid's just an absolute phenom on the bench press, Jeez. and he looks like he's very very quickly approaching that 600 pound mark. Uh, again, I'm pretty sure in in the IPF, which would be wild. Uh, and then last, uh, as 
another training lift. Blaine Sumner, Blaine's super cool, big fan of the guy. Um, everyone knows that he's the current best in the world in single ply in the IPF, but what people seem to forget is he used to also be absolutely incredible raw. He is still an incredibly good raw lifter. He just doesn't compete raw anymore. He recently posted a gym lift of him squatting 455 kilos, uh, which is 1,003 pounds. Basically looks like a speed rep, which his best raw squatting competition back in the day was 415 kilos, which is 914 pounds. So, I mean, he's he's looking like he could show up to a raw meet and still take out anyone in the world except for Ray Williams. Like, God, he's so strong. And as someone else who, like, I squat similarly to him, obviously way less weight, but just our bodies force us to do like a very hip dominant squat without much forward knee travel. So it's, it's good to see someone with that squat style succeeding. Blaine also super cool guy, really good dude. Um, so glad to see that his training's going well and that he is looking stronger than ever. A lot of people did very strong things the last few weeks. They did. That's awesome. All right. So for the next segment, uh, we've got research review, which is kind of a more nuanced, detailed look at at some research papers that caught our interest lately. And Greg's got a couple papers that he wants to talk about. Yeah, so th- the first one I thought was interesting, and I feel like I'm probably going to get a fair amount of shit for talking about it, but that's fine. Whatever. Come at me, haters. I'll just tell everyone that you're paying us $499 a month. For our beef service. I was going to say, I, I did talk to our lawyers about that. And they uh-huh. said, um, based on the way we advertise it, that actually could be like, if people are just mean to us, that might qualify as rendering services yeah, on the internet. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what I was thinking. So we can, those are billable uh, instances of interaction. Yeah, anytime someone talks shit, I'm just going to send them an invoice. Yeah, and it is retroactive as yeah. well. So if you have been mean to Greg on the internet in the last seven to ten years... <laughs> You might be receiving an invoice, and you can just make that payable through PayPal. That works. Uh, But yeah, so I I feel like this one's going to be somewhat controversial, but I think it's neat. So there's a paper, um, the title was Effects of Upper Body, Lower Body, or Combined Resistance Training on the Ratio of Follistatin and Myostatin in Middle-Aged Men. So just for some background, myostatin, I think most people are aware is a hormone that essentially limits hypertrophy. Um, it seems to primarily have its effects on satellite cells and myonuclei, such that in myostatin knockout animals, they develop just an absolutely tremendous amount of muscle tissue. So if you ever want to see some really, really freaky looking mice, just Google myostatin knockout mice. Uh, if you want to see the effects in dogs, Google Whippet versus Bully Whippet. It's the same breed of dog, but they have a a reasonably high occurrence of a recessive trait that gives them myostatin knockout. The Bully Whippets are super, super jacked. Um, Or if you want to go to my Facebook profile, three profile pictures ago, I took a picture with a Belgian Blue Bull, which is a type of cow that has been bred to be a myostatin mutant. Um... They're not particularly large. I guess I I guess I just assumed that they were bigger, like vertically. Um, 
But like, you know, I've been around black Angus cows. Black Angus cows are much larger than Belgian blue bulls are. But just, I'm in awe of the size of those lads. Just the sheer amount of muscle tissue they have is absolutely absurd. Belgian blues are the Dexter Jackson of bulls. <laughs> they're they're not the biggest on stage, but they are muscular as hell and lean. Yeah, they're very impressive. Um, but anyway, so that's myostatin. And folostatin... The kind of unnuanced way to look at it is it's kind of the reverse myostatin. Um, not exactly, but basically myostatin seems to inhibit hypertrophy. Endogenous folostatin seems to promote hypertrophy. Um, a, f- a few years back, people were promoting certain supplements as folostatin boosters. They didn't really seem to pan out very well. Um, but endogenous folostatin does seem to to promote hypertrophy. So anyway, you want low myostatin, high folostatin if you want to get jacked. So that was the background of this study. What they did is they took some middle-aged men, uh, they had a control group, who cares? Um, and then they had, th- <laughs> I mean, come on, dude. Like it, one, one thing that irks me a little bit is like when there are studies that have control groups, when you very much don't need control groups, which is like, if, if you have an exercise study where you expect things to change in untrained people, having a control group just makes recruitment more of a pain in the ass without really giving you anything, especially if the outcome is like strength gains. Cause like we fucking know that lifting weights makes people stronger. We don't need to recruit twice as many folks just to verify that not lifting weights doesn't make people stronger. Anyway, so there was a control group who cares about them. There were three training groups um, one was only doing upper body training, one was only doing lower body training, and one was doing combined upper and lower body training. Um, and so what they saw in terms of the folostatin and myostatin is that folostatin um, generally tended to increase in all three groups with the largest increase in the group doing combined upper and lower body training. And myostatin, um, myostatin tended to decrease in the group only doing lower body training, didn't really seem to change in the group only doing upper body training, and decreased the most in the group doing combined upper and lower body training, such that the ratio of uh, folostatin increase to myostatin decrease, like the folostatin to myostatin ratio, improved the most in the group doing combined upper and lower body training, still improved in the group only doing lower body training, and then improved the least in the group only doing upper body training. So from that, one may, uh, one might make the assumption that doing both upper and lower body training puts your body hormonally in a place that is going to be more uh, conducive to hypertrophy than only doing upper body training would be. So that sounds controversial. Reason it sounds controversial is that Back in the day, people used to put forth, like, I remember there were, there were like, T-Nation articles. It's like, you want big biceps, you got to do squats. Like, squats are the best bicep exercise there are. And a lot of it was based on the now largely discredited hormone hypothesis of hypertrophy, that when you exercise, you tend to get acute elevations in testosterone and growth hormone, the idea was those acute elevations in testosterone and growth hormone promoted hypertrophy 
And so if you trained for larger acute hormonal elevations, that would lead to greater hypertrophy. So in those studies, they tended to see much larger post-exercise increases in testosterone with lower body training than upper body training. So the idea being, well, if you want big arms, you got to make sure you do lower body training as well. Get those big post-exercise testosterone excursions. And then if you also do some curls in that workout also, that, that big spike in testosterone is going to help you help your arms get big. And I think, I think we look back on that idea and mock it because one, that perspective was massively overstated. Um, you know, go to any gym in the world and there's going to be guys who are pretty big that obviously barely train their legs and still have jacked upper bodies. So it's not like squatting is the key to getting big arms. Like training your arms is the key to getting big arms. Yeah. Um, and also I think people completely threw that idea under the bus because it was tied to the hormone hypothesis um, centered around testosterone and growth hormone. However, when we look back at the research that has actually tested that general idea and has actually measured changes in strength or muscle size longitudinally, we do actually see that there is some evidence for that effect occurring. So going back to 2001, there was a paper by Hansen titled The Effect of Short-Term Strength Training on Human Skeletal Muscle, colon, the importance of physiologically elevated hormone levels. See, there's the rub. They tried to tie it to the hormone excursions, um, which I think is why people tend to either not talk about this study now, or if they do, they tend to talk about it derisively. But basically there was, um, they used a within subject design here. One group or one arm did curls uh, in the same workout that they also did leg training. The other arm did the same curl workout, but without the leg training in the same training session. And what they saw is that the arm that was trained in the same session as legs had larger increases in isometric force output than the arm that was that just did the same arm training program without the additional leg training. Uh, one reason that people tend to sometimes disregard this study is just due to maybe failure and randomization. The group or the, the arm that uh, was also doing the leg training pre-training was about 20 to 25 percent weaker than the other arm was. Um, and this tends to be the only study that people will bring up if they talk about this concept at all. So it did have some weaknesses, um, specifically the fact that the arms didn't seem to be they did they just randomized they didn't counterbalance um so there were some pre-training strength differences and these researchers did seem to tie it specifically to the hormone hypothesis so people tend to not think too much about this study anymore um more recently in 2011 uh ronstad and colleagues had a study called physiological elevation in endogenous hormones results in superior strength training adaptations Again, not talking about what the study literally did, but tying it hard to the hormone hypothesis. Um, but it was basically the same thing. Uh, unilateral within subject design. One arm just did arm training. The other arm did arm training in the same workout that they also did leg training. And um, in that study, again, I, if memory serves in this study, strength gains were pretty similar but the arm that was trained along with legs had a larger increase in arm flexor cross-sectional area, so seeing more hypertrophy there. 
again, most people don't talk about this, this study anymore because people completely disregard the hormone hypothesis, and this is seen more as a hormone hypothesis study than just a training legs and arms together study. Then even more recently, in 2016 and finally published in 2018, uh, there was a study called Effective Lower Body Resistance Training on Upper Body Strength Adaptation in Trained Men by Bartolome et al. And in this study, um, what they did is they had two different groups that were both doing a combination of upper and lower body training but one of them was doing bench press training with low volume, but fairly high intensity lower body training. The other one did the same bench program, if memory serves, but had a higher volume lower body training program as well. And in that study, um, the group doing the higher volume lower body training along with their bench training had larger increases in bench press one rep max and also a larger increase in arm muscle area. So, we see three prior studies where doing either lower body training or higher volume lower body training along with upper body training either leads to more strength gains or more hypertrophy than either not doing lower body training in tandem or doing lower volume lower body training in tandem with the upper body stuff. And I feel like this most recent study looking at myostatin and folostatin possibly ties all of this together. So... Um, this most recent study was looking at resting levels of these hormones. And one of the weaknesses of the original hormone hypothesis was it was just looking at fluctuations in acute levels of testosterone and growth hormone. You know, elevations that go back to baseline in like 30 minutes or an hour. Whereas like, you know, we see that large increases in testosterone from like injections makes people super jacked. Seems to. Right, yeah. But, you know, having an elevation that only lasts 30 minutes, eh, maybe doesn't do all that much. But there is some prior research looking at hypertrophic responsiveness that seems to indicate that people who have the largest reductions in myostatin as a result of resistance training are also the people who have the largest increases in hypertrophy in response to resistance training. So if we're seeing that the combination of upper and lower body training affects myostatin and folostatin levels. That could possibly be something kind of tying all of this together. So again, I'm not I'm not 100% confident in this effect, but I think that people have completely disregarded the idea of getting more upper body growth from training it along with lower body. I think people have completely thrown out that idea, and I'm just kind of arguing that maybe there's still something more there um, th than people realize. So, and again, I don't want to overstate the effect. So I'm not saying, you know, th the key to big arms is to do curls after squats, but I am saying that, you know, maybe it is a little beneficial. Like maybe you're going to get a little larger upper body strength gains, a little more muscle growth. If you do your upper body training in the same session that you also do some reasonably high volume, lower body stuff. Yeah. One of the challenges with like trying to be objective with this evidence-based thing is like sometimes there are some findings that you're like i feel like these deserve attention mm -hmm. i'm not sure i can paint the whole picture yet mm -hmm. like i don't know if i can tell you exactly how and why mm -hmm. but 
why did we observe it a few times? Yeah, like, you know, we, like we, have, we have several studies finding pretty similar results. Like, there might be something to this. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's how it always starts. It's like, that's an interesting thing that we found a few times in a row. Mm-hmm. And then you, you start digging more. Yeah, and, and I also think it's... Um, I think this general discussion as well illustrates the drawbacks of ascribing a mechanism to something too quickly because Mm -hmm. often it's it's not uncommon that you observe something that's perfectly legitimate and valid and then you say we found this due to reasons a b and c and then subsequent research comes out that finds that you know reasons a b and c aren't valid that those aren't likely plausible mechanisms and then people kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater when the fact is you did make whatever observation it was and maybe it's just due to some other mechanism than the mechanisms that people were looking at previously i think it's the same thing as like keto stuff you know keto intermittent fasting all of it like you know someone says hey like i started doing intermittent fasting and it's been good and the reason it's good is it's jacking my growth hormone up. It's yeah. like, no, like that's that's not why. It's because you're not eating for more hours out of the day and it might be helping you manage your hunger and therefore eat less. Or like with keto, like you're removing a lot of very highly palatable foods from your diet. It's probably not due to the insulin reduction. It's probably just due to you eating less. So, you know, just don't... I think that... Mechani- mechanisms are obviously super important from a scientific scientific perspective, but I don't think practitioners, by and large, need to get crazy hung up on mechanisms. I think just the observation of what actually occurs is, for most people, the most important thing. Yeah. I, I remember going through a similar kind of thing with uh, when I first started looking at the literature with uh, high doses of caffeine during creatine loading. Mm-hmm. And I would talk to a lot of really knowledgeable people about it. And I'm like, so I I think I've found like three, maybe four studies that did a creatine loading protocol with high dose caffeine during it. And the the creatine was not ergogenic in any of those three to four interventions. And they're like, yeah, but the mechanism just doesn't make sense. I'm like, right, but, but creatine usually works. But in all these studies, it doesn't. And like, all I was saying is like, well, should we check? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's like, no, could be an annoying. Well, and the, and the thing is, it that's saying that the proposed mechanism doesn't make sense. Right. Not that it's not due to some other mechanism we haven't thought of yet. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. I just think that is a fun little body of research that is perhaps worth a second thought. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so the... Next study I want to look at is a classic, but I want to talk about it because it relates to our interview with Brandon. Um, I think this study was briefly mentioned during the interview, but we didn't dig into it a ton. And it is a study that I think a lot of people are aware of, um, but not a ton. And people generally seem to be interested in the results because it's pretty cool. The findings are useful and applicable, and also the study itself was really, really well controlled. And in a lot of the sleep research, a fair amount of the studies out there are purely observational in nature, but this was actually like a tightly well-controlled 
uh, like ward study where they had people sleeping in the lab every night uh, and giving them all of their meals to make sure that everything could be super tightly controlled. So the title of the study was Insufficient Sleep Undermines Dietary Efforts to Reduce Adiposity. And this was a crossover study, meaning that all of the subjects did both conditions. So they had one condition where they were sleeping eight and a half hours per night for two weeks. Then they had a washout period. uh, And then they had a condition where they were sleeping five and a half hours per night for two weeks. Um, Which condition each individual started with was randomized. So it wasn't like, you know, all long sleep and then all short sleep. Half of them started with the long sleep condition. Half of them started with the short sleep condition. Um, and so they were in bed for either eight and a half hours or five and a half hours per night. Uh, the actual sleep that they attained was closer to about seven and a half hours per night versus about five hours and 15 minutes per night. So sleep latency, like how long it took to actually fall asleep was a little bit shorter in the short sleep condition, which makes sense because you're really tired after only sleeping five and a half hours per night. So you tend to fall asleep a little bit quicker, but there was still a gap in of a little more than two hours in how long they actually slept per night. Um, so the two most, if any sleep researchers are listening to this, this may make you pull your hair out, but to simplify things quite a bit, the two most important phases of sleep seem to be slow wave sleep, which is sometimes called deep sleep, and REM sleep. Um, so slow wave sleep is where a lot of the physical regeneration during sleep takes place. And REM sleep is more where memory consolidation takes place. And I believe where you get the, um, growth hormone spikes during sleep as well. And so slow wave sleep was actually similar between both conditions. They seem to get a similar amount of slow wave sleep, but REM sleep was, um, significantly greater for the longer sleep condition. So about 108 minutes per night versus about 76 minutes per night, um, which is about what one would expect given the longer sleep group was getting through about one to two more sleep cycles per evening. Um, so anyway, that's just the sleep stuff in terms of the actual body comp effects, which is probably what most of you care about. Weight loss was similar in both conditions. So What they did in this study is they reduced, so they took the, if memory serves, they took the the subject's resting metabolic rate, knocked 40% off of that, and that was their calorie intake per day. So pretty large deficit, which makes sense because this was a pretty short-term study, so they needed to see measurable effects in a two-week time span. So pretty big deficit in both groups, Um, but the deficit was the same. And the weight loss was also the same as one would expect. It was about three kilos per group. However, in the long sleep condition, the loss of fat-free mass was only about one and a half kilos versus 2.4 kilos in the short sleep condition. And fat loss was about 1.4 kilos sleeping eight and a half hours per night versus 0.6 kilos when only sleeping, um, when only sleeping five and a half hours per night. So with a pretty big deficit and three kilos of weight loss, the group only sleeping five and or the condition where they only slept five and a half hours per night, only a fifth of the weight loss was fat loss, which is fucking brutal. Um, And so the uh, yeah, that's not good. So basically the, the weight loss was half fat mass, half fat free mass and the long sleep condition and 
mostly fat-free mass in the short sleep condition, which is which is not what you want. Um, one, yeah, that's a huge ratio of fat-free mass to fat mass. Yeah, that's in the low sleep. That condition. sucks. That's really bad. Like we're, I mean, we're we're talking three kilos of weight loss in two weeks. Like that's a lot of weight loss. That's six and a half pounds. Yeah. And only like a pound of that was actual fat. That's rough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, one potential mechanism that that may have contributed to those different effects on body comp was respiratory quotient was slightly lower when the participants were sleeping longer. So what respiratory quotient is, is uh, it's an estimate of what type of fuel you're using to generate ATP. So if you have a RQ of 0.7, that means that all of the energy you're generating is coming from fat or virtually all of it. If you have an RQ of 1.0, that means that all of like virtually all of the energy you're generating is coming from carbohydrate or carbohydrate and protein. Um, what is the RQ of protein? I, I know we tend to not even think about that because we, we mostly look at RQ and exercise. Mm. And I believe it's. Isn't it like 0.9 thereabouts? I was going to say either 0.85 or 0.9, but that's kind okay. of a guess. But yeah, so in general, higher RQ means more carbohydrate and or protein is, is where your uh, ATP is coming from. So the lower RQ with the greater sleep could be indicating, you know, m more of the actual fuel being oxidized for the weight loss is coming from fat. That would make sense given given what they actually observed in terms of body comp outcomes. One thing to note as well is, as I mentioned, this was an inpatient study where all of the food was supplied to the participants, so they were forced to maintain a calorie deficit. Um, one of the things they saw, though, was an increase in acetylated ghrelin with the short sleep condition. Uh, that is a hormone that generally promotes hunger. And so in the real world, um, what probably would have happened is the short sleep condition, people would have just ended up eating more food um, and probably not actually losing as much weight. Uh, and if that didn't happen, you know, you're still talking the same weight loss, way less fat loss, and you're going to be way hungrier in the process, which is not the sort of conditions you want. Um, and another interesting thing to note is, uh, so Eric previously talked about metabolic adaptation. One interesting thing to note in this study is resting metabolic rate actually ended up being lower in the poor sleep condition or with the with the short sleep. So when people were sleeping eight and a half hours per night, their resting metabolic rate was about 1500 calories per day versus about 1390 in the short sleep condition, which like a hundred calorie swing in RMR with not huge changes in body weight is is actually like a fairly big difference um and so one of one of the things they noted is that even though weight loss in terms of scale weight was the same in both groups due to the fact that there was more fat loss in the longer sleep condition the actual energy deficit was greater in the people who were sleeping more so the energy density of fat is substantially higher than the energy density of fat-free mass. So if you're losing, you know, very little fat, even if the scale weight loss is three kilos, the actual energy loss isn't quite as large. So in spite of the same scale weight loss, the energy deficit was higher in the group sleeping more hours 
They also lost less fat-free mass, um, just all around better. So one, one thing that I do want to note about this study is for strength athletes or physique athletes hearing about this study, neither condition sounds very good. Like, you know, half of your weight loss coming from uh, fat-free mass is a lot better than, you know, most 80% of your weight loss coming from fat-free mass. But that's not what anyone really wants to happen. So it is important to note there wasn't resistance training in this study. They weren't shoveling down 200 grams of protein per day. This was a pretty large energy deficit. So, you know, all of those standard caveats apply. But there's no reason to think that, you know, even if you are training and are eating protein, that you can get away with only sleeping five hours a night. Um, and it, and it's not just, I think when people talk about not sleeping much, they tend to think about it from a behavioral perspective. So you're going to be hungrier. You're going to be more likely to eat more. You're, you're, you may be a little bit less motivated to train, but also like mechanistically when everything else is controlled, you still wind up losing more lean mass and less fat mass due to not sleeping enough yeah a little real-time fact check here the respiratory quotient of protein different places on the internet are putting it at like 0. 0.8 0. 0.82 maybe a little bit north of that but generally speaking that increase in rq is indicative of less reliance on fat as a substrate so cool. generally speaking not what you want cool all right so i i am done with the research review section uh, now, Eric is going to d move on to the research roundup section of the podcast. So research review tends to get a little bit more in depth on certain uh, certain topics or particular studies. Research roundup, in theory, is more just a, a surface overview of, of multiple recent findings. We'll, uh, we'll see if we can actually do that this time around. <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to be like the Sports Center highlight reel, but sometimes we get a bit carried away. But in any case, because we had Brandon on for the, the interview portion this week and we talked a little bit about sleep, uh, I did happen to notice a lot of very recent papers related to sleep. So for the research roundup, just going to give a little overview of some of these recent papers. So one of them by Roberts and colleagues is called Extended Sleep maintains endurance performance better than normal or restricted sleep. Uh, so what the study did was uh, there were nine participants in a crossover trial. And the whole point was to basically manipulate their sleep habits and see how it affected their cycling performance in a time trial. So one condition was sleep reduction, which took them down to about 4.8 hours of sleep per night uh, for a few days in a row. The other normal sleep condition was about 6.8 hours per night, which is pretty typical. And then the sleep extension treatment arm was 8.4 hours a night. Uh, what they found, not super surprising, but time trial performance was worse with sleep restriction, and it was a little bit better than normal with sleep extension, which actually is pretty notable, that if you actively tried to get more sleep than normal in the study, it actually did have a meaningful benefit on that performance. Yeah, w one thing to note just in general. So I'm jumping in here because sleep extension is something that I'm all about. Yeah. Um, the the two periods in my training career where I've made probably like seventy percent of my post newbie gains were uh, 
periods in time where where I had a schedule that allowed me to sleep like 10, 11 hours per night. So I do I do legitimately think that sleep extension is really, really good shit. Um, and so some of the studies that are out there look at endpoints that theoretically could just be related to like psychology and focus. So for example, um, reaction time to a starting gun for for like getting off the blocks when swimming, um, free throw accuracy, serving accuracy in tennis, stuff like that. But similarly to this study where, you know, it's endurance athletes and they're doing a time trial. Like that's what an endurance race is. So we're talking about tangible benefits in physical performance that's going to matter to athletes. So some of the studies that have looked at sleep extension have seen that as well. So a study on basketball players found pretty notable decreases in sprint times. A study on swimmers found that, uh, I want to say... I want to say it was 50 meter sprint performance decreased by like 0.4 seconds, which in swimming is a tremendous amount of time. So yeah, it, it's not just um, things that could be related to like psychology or focus or, or stuff like that. Like we do see like clear benefits in actual physical performance that athletes care about with reasonably short-term sleep extension. Like you don't have to do it for months at a time. Like just a few nights of better sleep seems to have a pretty like actually measurable impact on performance. Yeah. As you alluded to, this study did have some of those extraneous variables. They did find that sleep restriction, uh, made your mood worse, which is the most predictable thing I've ever heard. Uh, it also impaired psychomotor vigilance. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like a reaction time kind of thing. And, uh, but, but yeah, probably most importantly, the time trial performance was significantly affected. And like you were saying, the, the magnitude of extension, it was only three days. And we're talking about the, the total time in bed being 8.4 hours. Mm -hmm. Like everybody always wants to find like the next powder and potion that's going to make them better. And it's like, just put your phone down and go to bed Yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> and like, that might be enough to get you that extra, like. 60 minutes in bed or something. Mm -hmm. All right. Another study that came out, sleep restriction impairs maximal jump performance and joint coordination in elite athletes. This is by Ma and colleagues. And with this one, 11 elite cyclists were recruited. Um, they, they did a one week baseline with just like normal sleep habits. And then they had their sleep restricted to four hours a night for three nights. And that's one of the things about these sleep studies that you see is like, it doesn't take that long to develop a meaningful sleep debt. It's, it's yeah. a couple nights, a well, few and, nights. And if I could jump in again here as well. So this study is from uh, Cherry Ma. She's the one who's done most of the sleep extension research to this point. And what you were talking about, people wanting the powders and potions versus actually just sleeping more. One of the things you'll note if you look for research on sleep extension is there's not that many studies out there. If you look at studies on sleep restriction, there's a lot of studies out there. I read an interview with uh, Sherry Ma from a couple years ago, and they they asked her, like, you know, some of the sleep extension work you're doing seems really cool, really promising. One thing to note is most of her stuff was done on, uh, so she's from Stanford, and it was actually, like, their athletes. So the one on the swimming team Stanford swimming team, as of, I think, like four years ago, if it was a country, would have finished like fourth in the medal counts for swimming at the Olympics. So we're talking really fucking good swimmers. Um, 
And so, yeah, the interviewer asked her, like, why aren't we seeing more of this research? This seems super promising. Like, aren't athletes super excited about this? She was like, ah, it's just hard to find subjects. And so putting that in context, there are seemingly an unlimited number of people who are willing to say like, ah, whatever. Yeah, I can sleep four hours a night for three nights. But she's having a hell of a time finding people who are willing to sleep 10 hours a night for three nights. Like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, like people are willing to say like, you know, whatever. I can do more stuff in my day and just have a few hours of poor sleep. But even among elite athletes, having a hard time finding people who are willing to sleep a few extra hours a night for a week or two. Um, People just don't want to sleep. They want to do other shit. But sleeping more is good stuff. And it, it's yeah. a big it's a big enough problem that we have a hard time studying it because you can't even convince people to sleep more for the good of science. I know, but it's it's one of those things that's so relatable though, because like I haven't been sleeping as much as I should lately, mm-hmm. and it's like when it's time to like call it a night and just go to bed, you're like, ah, no, I want to do some other things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the next day, you're like, you trade it off like staying awake for another hour and now you just feel like garbage for like six hours in the middle of your day and you're yeah, like yeah i don't think that was a good deal but but then it's the deal you make six Every, six days a week i was gonna <laughs> say then the next night you're like well i don't want to go to bed just yet no i mean i, I do the same thing but Terrible. it's 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 wild i mean yeah. every single one of us fails the marshmallow test every day yeah and that's why everyone is a complete and utter failure correct now in this study Uh, One of the things that was cool was you think vertical jump test, you know, pretty simple test. You get a height measurement, uh, but they actually did the 3D motion capture with it. And so they they did find a statistically significant reduction in jump height due to sleep restriction from 0.44 meters to 0.42 meters. But uh, one of the really interesting things was that the biomechanical parameters that they measured changed a little bit. And so I'm not, I'm not not a biomechanist, but but what they were talking about a lot in the discussion was that this sleep restriction caused these athletes who are, are you know well trained athletes. They're not necessarily jumpers, so to speak, in terms of their sport, um, but it led them to deviate from their typical preferred movement patterns. So the biomechanical parameters changed, and the authors were speculating that this could have implications when it comes to not only performance but also injury risk mm. in athletes. So it's not just that they weren't jumping as high, but they were moving differently. The next study we've got here is called The Effects of Sleep Loss on Military Physical Performance by Clementine Grandau et al. Um, And so this was a a review paper looking at a bunch of different studies on military physical performance. And there's pros and cons of military research. Um, Sometimes you feel bad ethically looking at what they put... they put these soldiers through because <laughs> you know that it's like they consented but like kind of right it's like yeah yeah you guys are kind of just gonna do this I, I at least i think that's how i've never done military research but i would imagine consent looks a little bit differently in that context i think you consent to everything that happens afterwards when you sign up but yeah. it's not like a ongoing consent process to everything that happens to you yeah but so so you'll see a lot of extreme interventions that take place in military personnel um they also often tend to lack some of the principles of like a good randomized controlled trial you would typically see with randomization and blinding because it's just many times not practical Mm -hmm. um but the thing is like 
sometimes this stuff is really important to do. Like, why is the military studying these different the crazy sleep deprivation scenarios? Because soldiers are going to go through them. Yeah. Like, that yeah. happens. And so it, it's almost unethical to not study it before you put soldiers into that, that situation. So there's a bunch of different studies, and the sleep loss interventions varied a lot. So some of them were just like, we're going to get you down to five hours of sleep for five days in a row, which is like not super atypical for like a rough week at work. You know, uh, some of the studies, though, it'd be like 60 hours straight of sleep deprivation. And <laughs> one of them actually said it was up to like 102 hours straight. <laughs> Jesus Christ, what? <laughs> yeah, like some of them were like pretty terrible, man. Uh, so what they found, uh, there were nine studies in the review looking at strength and three looking at muscular endurance. And there were some mixed results in there, which you're going to find because there was a lot of heterogeneity in terms of the study designs, the, the different outcomes they measured, the different levels of sleep deprivation. Uh, but generally speaking, they, they found reductions in things like hand grip strength, leg extension, elbow flexion, things like that. Uh, when it, when looking at strength and that was even in studies that were doing restriction of like five hours a night for five nights so it wasn't just like oh if you stay up for three days you're not as strong um, the trends were really similar for muscular endurance uh, reductions in elbow flexion uh, force leg extension push-ups sit-up numbers uh, and again that's with just five hours of sleep for for five days in a row um, so when I was reading through that obviously there's a lot of heterogeneity a lot of mixed results but even with um, very realistic, real-world levels of sleep deprivation, they're seeing measurable uh, impairments of the types of things that we would do mm -hmm. in the gym, which is um, all the more reason to really prioritize sleep. Now, there were a couple caffeine-related sleep studies recently that caught my eye. Uh, one came out of the Netherlands, mm. but we're going to give it a fair, we're going to give it a fair shake mm -hmm. and be objective. Should we? Well, we'll, we'll talk about it. I, so, I, I just don't know if we should actively promote people from that culture and lifestyle on this podcast. Well, I'm not really going to promote their findings as, as we'll see. <laughs> So it's called evening use of caffeine moderates the relationship between caffeine consumption and subjective sleep quality in students. Um, the uh, the author first author was Kerpershook, maybe. And what they were looking at is uh, it was a big old sample of people with some survey data. And the thing that was interesting about it was they found that higher weekly caffeine consumption was only related to poor sleep quality for people who didn't consume caffeine in the evening. Mm -hmm. um, even though their total weekly caffeine consumption was lower than that uh, of the evening caffeine consumers. So it, it, it's like they found this like subjective sleep disturbance only in people who specifically didn't have caffeine at night. It's like kind of a convoluted way to to describe that, but I think that makes sense in terms I mean, of how it, I phrased it. It doesn't make yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. Logically. What, what what you said makes sense in that I literally know what you're describing, but the yeah. findings themselves don't make sense. Yeah, it's like it's kind of a mouthful, but the findings don't make sense. And and honestly, they actually walk there. They they basically downplay their own results. Mm -hmm. They pointed out that even though higher caffeine intake was related to poorer sleep quality in students uh, who 
purposely didn't consume caffeine in the evening. They found that it was not associated with total sleep time or the onset of sleep. So it's not like they were laying in bed and couldn't fall asleep, and it's not like they slept any less. Mm -hmm. They just had a lower subjective quality score. And then later in the paper, they said it's highly unlikely in terms of like an actual physiological effect being observed. Mm -hmm. They say a more plausible explanation is that this is just they're observing a self-regulating mechanism where people who people who know that they're going to have no issue sleeping might be more likely to have caffeine at night. Yeah, m- more of like a reverse causation thing. Exactly. So they think that the maybe they're observing this because the people who have who know that they generally sleep poorly are like, well, I better make sure I don't have caffeine at night. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I mean, props to the authors for like, th- they probably didn't expect to find that in their analysis, and they mm-hmm. did, and they reported it, but then they were like, hey, like, everybody chill. Now, hopefully, all the, like, science journalists out there will actually read that part and not like go wild with it i haven't seen any like absurd headlines about this paper but you could definitely see that as something where if people didn't read all those caveats later they would just be like well key to better sleep drink your fucking coffee at 9 p.m yeah you don't have to cut down on your coffee you just have to drink it at night that's basically what the results show (laughs) i mean and that's what they do show but but the authors are like yeah that's probably not probably not how it works yeah Now, another paper that caught my eye is called Evening Intake of Alcohol, Caffeine, and Nicotine, Night-to-Night Associations with Sleep Duration and Continuity Among African Americans in the Jackson Heart Sleep Study. And this is by Spadola et al. And so with this one, they had 785 people uh, in this really big study, average age of 63.7 years. I don't want to get too into the details on this um, for... A reason that I'll get to in a second here, but anyway, so so it was largely uh, they they did have some survey based data, but they also had actigraphs for some objective sleep measurements at home for these individuals. And the reason I don't want to get too far into it is because even looking at the results, um, they they were looking at whether people had caffeine, alcohol, or nicotine within the four hours prior to going to sleep, and what they reported was caffeine had no effect on the amount of sleep or sleep quality when it was consumed within four hours of bed, but they found that alcohol and nicotine did. Um, but when you look at the results, like the evening alcohol use was associated with lower sleep efficiency, but the reduction in sleep efficiency was only like 1%. It was actually less than 1%. It just happened to be statistically significant. Um, same thing when you look at the nicotine results. Nicotine within four hours of bed was associated with worse sleep, but it was like a 1.8% reduction in sleep efficiency, which pretty negligible. And then um, this WASO acronym, uh, that went up by six minutes. And that's basically, uh, it's defined as the total time awake after the onset of sleep. Mm-hmm. So there was like six extra minutes where they were kind of sitting in bed, looking at the ceiling, going like, ah, wish I was still asleep. Um, but six minutes, such a negligible change, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So um, basically, they, they found these very small changes related to alcohol and nicotine. But one of the really big caveats, which they are very open about, is they basically had no information pertaining to the exact dose and the exact timing. Mm-hmm. So I, I understand what they were trying to do uh, with this kind of big study looking at a huge sample size. But 
there are certain research questions that I think are just much better asked with very direct experiments on smaller samples. Yeah. And I think this fits. There's certainly value in, in some of these larger observational studies, but if you want to find out if having caffeine before bed keeps you awake, the best way to do that is give some people caffeine and see how they sleep. Yeah, yeah. Like, just do it. And so one of the reasons that I'm really skeptical of some of these observational studies we just talked about is there's there's a study from 2013, but it's uh, Drake et al., and they look, they, they did exactly what we're talking about. Just bring people in, double blind, give them the caffeine some amount of time before bed and see how they sleep. And what they what they were studying is, we've, we've mentioned this study before on the podcast, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, we have. But they either gave them caffeine zero, three, or six hours before going to bed um, in a, a double blind study. And they had subjective measures of sleep quality and also some objective measures of sleep quality. And the caffeine dose was 400 milligrams, which is it's a pretty hefty dose. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally speaking, what they found was whether you took it zero, three, or six hours before bed, um, there were statistically significant disruptions in sleep. And not only were they statistically significant, but they were they were real. I mean, we're talking about like latency to sleep with the placebo was like 21 minutes of trying to get to bed. All the caffeine conditions we're talking about like. 45 to 60 minutes so effectively a doubling or a tripling in the time it takes to get to bed and then when it talk when we look at total sleep time uh total sleep time was was again like meaningfully reduced like we're talking like 40 minutes plus yeah yeah and so when, when you look at that compared to the observational studies looking at some of this stuff when you consider the rigor of the studies but also the magnitude of the effects that we're seeing I just think these these in lab studies uh, or, or these more direct interventions are such a better way to answer that question when mm-hmm. it comes to this specific question, and I think I have a lot more confidence uh, in those results. And the the more rigorously controlled studies would indicate that you really ought to be pretty cautious when it comes to caffeine dosing within really a handful of hours before bed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we've mentioned on the show, whenever I get a client who has sleep issues, first thing, first thing we talk about is how much caffeine are you having and when, and if not, if nighttime or evening time caffeine is in the mix, you, you just got to cut it and see if that fixes it. Yeah. All right. To play us out today, um, Greg, the other day shared on the Q and a episode, he talked a little bit about his ice cream recipes and people like that, but not everybody is indulging in ice cream consumption some of us are trying to keep things a little bit leaner and so there's been a lot you're the only person who had two bowls of ice cream last night that's private you don't talk about that on the show you can't you can't talk about other people indulging when you're when you're the person who indulges the most that's hypocritical eric it's I'm willing to risk my temporary guest host slot to make sure that this indignity can't go unchecked. Okay, yeah. I had two servings of ice cream last night. Nobody else did. But was, was it good? It was. It was very Fuck good. Yeah, it, it was, was good. It was mint chocolate chip. Of course it was good. The mint was really good. The mint was re- and it was I think it was uh I think it was dark chocolate, those chips. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could tell those were really good. Um but in any case, people- <laughs> People like me that are shredded year round that 
wouldn't, wouldn't dream of going near ice cream. We need chicken recipes. And people on the internet have been clamoring. They say, Eric, how do you make your chicken, uh, your world famous chicken, how does it work? <laughs> and it's pretty simple. And it's kind of like, uh, I've got a quote here from Forrest Gump when Bubba is talking about shrimp. Pineapple shrimp, lemon shrimp, coconut shrimp, pepper shrimp, shrimp soup, etc., etc. You can really do anything with shredded chicken. Anything. So the first step, though, is you got to make the chicken. And what you do is you put the chicken in a crock pot. I actually have two crock pots. Um, I've had a two crock pot system for years because I can make, I could probably make up to like 13 pounds of chicken breast at once. Um, so you put the chicken in the crock pot and you want to make sure it's totally submerged in water. And you're going to put in either a store-bought packet of taco seasoning or uh, a bouillon cube uh, or some kind of chicken broth. And so you're going to put that in there, cook it for eight hours on low heat. And when you wake up, it'll be ready for you. And then you're going to shred it up right when you take it out of the, the crock pot when it's still hot. That's the easiest time to shred it with a couple forks. Um, you can get the weird little bear crawl, bear claw looking things, but just use forks. It's fine. Now, step two, you're going to make the meal. And so what I've got are six finger licking, absolutely <laughs> delectable <laughs> meals here. So the first one is the first one's barbecue, barbecue chicken. And what you do is you take your shredded chicken, you heat it up in the microwave and, and you you put your favorite barbecue sauce on it and that's pretty much that's pretty much it but but like if you wanted to though if you wanted to you could get like some baked beans at the store and maybe like some coleslaw if you had the calories for it but you know you could put it on a bun if you wanted i guess but barbecued chicken's the easiest one you just put barbecue sauce on your chicken that's easy um, chicken Parmesan. This is one of my favorite meals I make. Oh, fuck. Um, <laughs> so what I do is I take, uh, the chicken, I put it in a bowl, heat it up in the microwave. I put some kind of pasta sauce on it and some mozzarella cheese, and then a lit, just a little bit of Parmesan cheese on top of that. And that's chicken Parmesan. If you want, you could also put some vegetables in it. Um, what I'll do is I'll get like frozen spinach or froze and or frozen mushrooms, and I'll heat those up and put it in the chicken parmesan. It'll be pretty good. Uh, chicken lasagna. This one's really good. <laughs> oh, fuck. Uh, chicken lasagna is when you make your chicken parmesan, but you just put uh, fat-free cottage cheese in it. <laughs> oh, no. I've done where, that. Where, where's the lasagna? Well, there's cottage cheese. Where are the noodles? You don't, No, it's low-carb. There's no noodles. What lasagna recipe uses cottage cheese? Some do, instead it's, of like ricotta. No, it's either ricotta or a bechamel. No, I use cottage. Oh, God. Yeah. Eric. Um, chicken pizza. This one's good. Uh, chicken pizza, you, you get some naan bread, like N-A-A-N, and you put some pizza sauce on it, some of your shredded chicken, cover that with cheese, put it in the oven, 400 degrees, and you're good. Once the cheese melts, you're ready to go. And I, I, I actually approve of that one. That one's good. That's good. Yeah, that one's really good. Uh, there's also, a, I don't know what to call this. Um, I basically just put like a California mix of vegetables. So cauliflower, broccoli, and carrots. And then I put the shredded chicken in there with some Italian dressing, maybe a little mozzarella cheese. That's pretty good. And then chicken tacos. Now, chicken tacos I have every single day. 
Um, I've had chicken tacos every day for the last probably four months, I would estimate, usually for lunch and dinner, actually. And it's pretty simple. You just uh, you get some kind of riced vegetables uh, in the frozen section at the grocery store. You heat those up, put your shredded chicken in there, uh, put it on a tortilla, some cheese, sour cream, salsa, hot sauce. Greg makes some homemade hot sauce that's really, really good. Uh, but when I run out of that, I just get the store-bought stuff, and it's it's all right, I guess. So yeah, those are, I mean, that's, what is that, six different chicken meals to keep you busy for the next couple of years when you're prepping. Um, you know, not every, we're all, you're busy, I'm busy. We don't have time to make all these elaborate ice creams and custards and whatever else they're making. So we just make basic stuff with shredded chicken and it works well and uh, happy cooking. That lasagna brings me physical pain. It do, it's not good. You can't call it lasagna, man. You can, but it's just not good. The, the problem is the cottage cheese is too much liquid. You, you're you're going to receive a visit from the ghost of Garfield past, <laughs> and uh, it's not going to be pretty. So I, I do want to, like, sometimes we're sarcastic on the show. I want to be very, very clear that this is literally how I eat. <laughs> um, and I'm not being sarcastic, and Greg, you, you can you can attest to this. Um so if you're out there and when Greg's talking about all these meals and it just makes you feel tired and you're like, God, cooking sounds horrible, I want you to know that I'm with you and it's it's okay for us to be this way. Sure. Greg, admit that it's okay for us to be this way. Dude, you can cook good stuff and it's not that hard. Well, there's two different schools of thought. We've, we've given both to the audience and oh, now they man. can choose Team Eric or Team team greg sure all right i think that does it for for today's episode right yes sir so on the interview portion of today's episode we've got an interview with dr brandon roberts uh he's got a phd in uh some exercise science related field he he did a lot of work with like pretty nitty-gritty muscle biology um so this guy knows a lot about muscle physiology uh we talked to him a little bit about uh, his recent bodybuilding contest preparation. We talked about some muscle physiology research, and then we talked a little bit about sleep as well. So uh, that interview will will start playing after the music. As always, thank you for listening. Take care. All right, welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is the host, Eric Trexler. I'm here with temporary guest host, Greg Knuckles. And for the interview portion of today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Brandon Roberts. Brandon, thank you for joining us. Ah, thanks for having me, guys. I, um, I'm curious when you're going to replace your uh, co-host, if you need anybody to take that up. Yeah, I've been getting a lot of applications, a lot of really strong applications. So, um, I mean, it's kind of hard to find time in the day to get through all of them, but there's a lot of really good ones. He's going to be replacing his co-host around the same time he becomes interested in replacing his job. Yeah, I mean, all options are on the table. Yeah, Um, including the nuclear option. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, Brandon, there's a lot of stuff we want to talk to you about tonight. Um, But before we get into that, you are a competitive bodybuilder, aside from all of your academic uh, interests. Or I guess in conjunction with your academic interests. And your most recent competition was like four days ago, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was four days ago and I 
was fortunate enough to take um, first in men's overall bodybuilding. Um, and it was, a, I had a blast. And so is this your, this is not your first prep, is it? No. So this is my second season. I did two shows in 2016 and then I, I generally try to do two to three shows a season. Um, but I would say this is the first one where I feel really good about everything. And I'm like, okay, I have a decent physique now. <laughs> awesome. I mean, yeah, I saw the pictures. You looked really great. Um, and congratulations on picking up the win. And it sounds like you've got uh, another competition coming up soon, right? Yeah. So we're going to try to get one in at the end of the month. Um, not that it's the end all be all, but you know, every amateur bodybuilder wants to go pro and I'd like at least a shot at, um, a pro card. So that's, that's the, the ultimate goal. If it doesn't happen, that's totally fine. Yeah. I mean, good luck with that. Um, I don't want you to psych yourself out, but if you want some really <laughs> lofty goals, you can try to go pro in two separate sports, which is what I've done. <laughs> And a lot of people are very, very impressed by that. And they call me Bo Jackson pretty frequently, which I'm I'm happy to have that nickname. I think it's I think it sells me short a little bit. But in any case, Bo did some good work, too. Yeah, I was actually thinking I listened to that podcast right on my walk today. And I was thinking you were more of a Deion Sanders type. What do you what do you think about that? You know, Eric Helms and I talked about this. And I think Helms is kind of a pretty boy. Helms is really flashy. He's kind of. Uh, unlikable. I think he's more the Dion and I'm more the Bo Jackson. <laughs> I think we arrived at that conclusion. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. And Greg, you were probably there when we chatted about that in London. We were there for the European Powerlifting Conference and kind of sorted all this stuff out. I don't think I was there for that conversation. <laughs> well, we got to the bottom of it. Now, Brandon, I always like to ask people this uh, just because I'm curious about the variability between people. Your current prep, what's the lowest that your caloric intake got? Um, yeah, so I ended up digging pretty dang hard the, the four days before uh, the refeed. And I was sitting there at like 1,400 calories for three or four days. Um, came back out of prep this weekend and hit two more days of 1,400. I don't know, and I don't know that I want to stay that low very long. Um so we'll kind of see how it goes. You said you got down to 1300 for a few days? Yeah, yeah. Not something I would recommend for everyone. Oh, that's brutal. What did you eat on a, on a day of 1300 calories? Oh, man. I have I have a whole like plan. I eat the, the same stuff every day, basically. So it's like egg whites and oatmeal, not much oatmeal. Um, I have tuna with Greek yogurt and carrots. And then I usually have some like chicken and vegetables and protein bar and some vegetables, more vegetables. So that's kind of it. And so what, what, what kind of daily protein intake are we talking about? Um, somewhere between 190 and 200 grams. So 200 grams of protein on 1300 calories. That yeah. is, uh, you know, when they, when they say if it fits your macros, I don't think those are the macros they had in mind. <laughs> no, def definitely not. It's uh, it it got to the point where, and I actually used it just now, where I, I'll time my carb intake around important tasks in the day. So if I have a meeting or I want to <laughs> <laughs> write part of a paper um, or a grant, like I'm working on this big grant right now, and I'm like, all right, I've got like three hours where I'm productive. <laughs> 
Oh man, I've been there. It's not a good place to be, but but I I, I know what you're saying, man. It it it's finally the spot where nutrient timing becomes critical when you have to try to write something important when your brain doesn't work. Now, with this prep, what have been your your favorite and your least favorite parts? Um, so my probably my least favorite parts are I I went on a couple different trips and I love the trips, but I hate not knowing um, exactly or being able to prep the exact food um, that I want. It just makes adherence a little bit harder. So, you know, NSCA conference, went to Mexico, went um, on a two-week tour of the West Coast uh, for vacation. And so it's it's hard to enjoy those things. I'm, I've gotten a lot better at it, but um, that's my least favorite part is having to sacrifice stuff that would normally be like I'd have way more fun. Yeah, and I was actually with you. Uh, we were both in Mexico, and then we were both at the NSCA conference. They were like a few weeks apart, and it was like every time I saw you, you looked completely different. <laughs> you were in that like last phase of prep where every three weeks, you're like a completely different person. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm actually shaved now, so I'm, I look even more different. I was sporting a beard to cover up the prep face for a while. Yeah. Normally, when you talk to a bodybuilder deep in prep, the two things that come up a lot are hunger and then hormone issues and also sleep issues. What seems to be the toughest this time around? Um, So I get I definitely get hangry. Um, I. I've actually imploded any important personal relationships as a result (laughs) of that. No, no. And my wife even approved of the second competition, which I'm, you know, always grateful for. Um, but I have, I, I've done better this prep. I would say my first, or my pet prep in 2016, I didn't sleep very well at all. Like I was sleeping like four to five hours a night. I was super productive, but just couldn't sleep. Um, and then I think hormonally I'm fine. I mean, my hormones are in the tank but that's pretty normal so and i'm sleeping better so when you say hormonally you're fine does that just mean that hormonally you're not fine but you're okay with it (laughs) yes that's exactly correct that's yeah i can't do anything about it and i know my you know test is really low and everything else is messed up so i'm just like yeah okay whatever yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to be a smartass, but honestly, my, my most recent prep was my smoothest. And I think the difference was I went into it expecting just general shit and chaos. And so when I found it, I was like, oh, yeah, this is fine. <laughs> it, it's not that I felt any better. It was just that I, I had emotionally made peace with my existence at that point. Now, we mentioned that we were both in Mexico uh, at an event down there and one of the things that you talked about was response heterogeneity. Um, this is a topic I've seen you talk and write about on, on a few different occasions. Um, so for listeners who have maybe never even heard the term response heterogeneity, what is it and why is it important? Um, okay, so it's, an, it's, it's a really long term and I generally shorten it to just responsiveness, uh, but it's how different people adapt to the same stimulus and that can be nutrition or training or whatever you you know you're you're studying um you just see that obviously not everybody adapts the same and sometimes if you look at you know data and studies or 
have enough athletes or whatnot. You can even see that nobody is actually changing uh, kind of at the average. Why do you take it upon yourself to talk about it when you go to events? Why have you written about it? Like, like what, what does this mean for the, the person at home who trains people or is training themselves or just likes to kind of stay up to date with the literature? Yeah, so I've, I've been quite fascinated with it. And that's why I went and did um, first three years my postdoc with uh, Bauman, who kind of made his name in this, this area. Um, but I just, I wanted to figure out why people just, you could see massive differences in how they respond to the exact same thing under pretty much the same circumstances. Um, and, and take that information and turn it around and relate it to, Hey, you know, you're, you're one of my athletes or whatever, and, or maybe you have your own athletes and you have this one athlete who's just not adapting as well as everyone else right so so then you can change a lot of variables and and you can probably use a year trying to figure it out but maybe they just don't respond as well or maybe they respond super well right so i just wanted to try to figure out kind of the science behind that and um honestly i i've learned a lot but there's no like straight answer so would would you say that the primary thing holding most people back is that they just don't want it bad enough? Because that—that's what I learned in middle school football, and that's uh, that's proven pretty true for me throughout most of my life. People either succeed or they're lazy moochers. Is—is that the case with resistance training as well? I was going to say there's also a, a segment of the population that has not run enough sprints to develop mental toughness yet, which is a key part of that. <laughs> but ideally, without access to water well yeah if you get the water then you don't develop all the toughness water is for cowards water makes you weak water is for washing blood off your jersey you better not get any blood on your jersey do you care to comment brandon (laughs) i i remember those uh high school football and soccer days i remember that very very deeply (laughs) and uh no i'm i'm sure there's some element involved but maybe not that extreme (laughs) on a serious note do you ever do you ever hesitate to bring this up when you're first working with a client? Like, do you ever have fear that you might plant the idea that the second they reach kind of a, a sticking point in the program that they're just going to conclude like, well, apparently I'm screwed. This ain't for me. Time to pack it in. Um, I, I usually do wait a little while. Uh, I think you can plant seeds, but also when you're first getting someone uh, that they're really really likely to make some progress even just from the different programming if they're you know coming from a different coach or if they're solo coaching themselves whatever um so yeah i usually wait at least six to eight weeks when it comes to response heterogeneity we've defined it but i think one of the things that's really helpful is putting some kind of magnitude with it to to give people an idea of when we look at responses to training whether it's hypertrophy or uh, strength gains, like what kind of magnitudes of variability do we see in responses to training? Yeah. So there's quite a large magnitude. If, if we want to talk maybe relative terms, cause that's a little easier. Um, you, you can see 10% below the average all the way up to 20 to 30% above the average. Um, so that's just the ability to change 
um, from baseline, you know, losing strength maybe or gaining you know, 25% strength in a study or something. So it's pretty wide. And if you look at um, different measures, so, like, you know, if you're looking at muscle fibers or something, like that can be quite a large difference. Um, we had one person in a study who <laughs> lost like 80% of their muscle fiber size. And I'm looking at the data and I was like, yeah, no, I think that's, that's not right. <laughs> um, so it can be quite large. So they lost 85% of their fiber size. Was that just yeah. measurement error? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Because, I mean, sometimes I'll look at these studies that show individual responses and you'll see somebody that over the course of a resistance training program, they get weaker or they have mm. a reduction in muscle size. Are there people who are having real, genuine reductions in muscle size in response to a program that is designed to promote hypertrophy? Or do you think those are instances of a poor response plus some downward trending measurement error. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I would be more prone to say it's a, it's just a poor response and a lot of measurement error. Um, a lot of people don't report kind of the repeatability measures uh, in their papers anymore. Um, and like I was just reviewing a paper yesterday on hypertrophy and I was like, well, so what are your, like, interrelational correlations or ICCs. Um, definitely butchered that, but that's okay. Uh, and they never had any. I'm like, well, that's pretty important to know your error rate, right? I'm like, if you want to know true change, you need to have some idea of what your error is. Well, I mean, if, if it's something like a, a muscle thickness or a cross-sectional area, unless you're just horrendously bad at doing an ultrasound, Shouldn't measurement error for that be reasonably low? Yeah. So in, in ultrasounds, for sure. I mean, that, that's pretty, um, I don't want to say crude because I actually really like ultrasounds for measurements. Um, but some of the muscles that we see that aren't measured very often, so like the glute or something, um, may have generally lower kind of repeatability measures. And, and you know, if you've been doing measurements for a decade, um, obviously you're better at it than someone who just started too. So I think there are a lot of factors um, that you can definitely control. Um, but I do always like to just see that. Clearly responses are quite variable. Obviously, anytime you look at a study, there's going to be some degree of measurement error uh, kind of baked into the cake there. But uh, certainly responses genuinely are quite variable between people. What exactly is the root cause of this pretty wide range of variability um so i i think there's no one root cause but i can i can give you a, a number of things that i've seen in person and then just kind of speculate a little bit but i mean obviously there's genetics and epigenetics on top of that uh which we can't control and you know you can't really pick your parents maybe you get lucky maybe you don't um now you can control effort, which we kind of mentioned. So if, if you're giving a high amount of effort, that probably helps. Um, in studies, nutrition plays a large role, adherence, right? Did people come in and do all of their sessions? Or, you know, as an athlete, are you hitting all of your sessions? Are you skipping like like day every fifth week or something? Um, so you have those. And then there are also... Um, 
kind of how even different trainers in the same gym will train you to, to go into failure or not go into failure. Like you have some RPE type differences there. Um, so I, I think it's a lot of little things adding up um, rather than, you know, just like, I have gene X, I can't hypertrophy. Do you have any hope that we're really going to nail down those genetic determinants of training responses? Or, or do you think there's so much, you know, because it, it's not like that we're going to find the singular gene that explains 95% of a particular uh, training adaptation, you wouldn't think. I mean, do you think there's any hope of trying to unravel the uh, the the web of genes that, that are going to be really dictating a lot of these responses? Um, I, I mean, if you look at some of the, the weight loss studies, they've, they're they kind of ahead of the game compared to some of the exercise studies. And even them, like, you're looking at maybe a 5 to 7% max um, explanation from one specific gene or whatnot. Um, and I, and I don't know that we'll ever really figure it out. Um, there is a, a study that's going to attempt that starting mm, sometime soon. Um, that's recruiting like 3000 subjects. Holy and shit. It's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is so that it's in a, your lab. So that is, it's a, it's a Nash nationwide study called motor pack. They actually have a website. It's pretty public. It's NIH funded. Um, and so they're going to have last time it changes slightly every, every so often, but last time I heard about it, they are going to have, um, a resistance arm, an endurance arm and a control arm and have, I think it's 12 to 16 weeks of training, um, and do pretty much every omics you can think of with the best people in the country. And then also do... Uh, muscle, fat, blood. Um, I think there's even some microbiome stuff in there. Um, basically, you're taking a whole bunch of tissue from people and paying them a whole bunch of money, um, and then they're gonna they're gonna compare that and have about three thousand people in the exercise groups, and I think like five hundred or a thousand in the control group. So yeah, that'll that's you know ten years down the road, but that'll be a good chunk of answers, hopefully. I tell you what, we, we've talked about this on the on the show, um, how critical it's going to be to start moving toward doing more multi-center trials where you've got several different research groups collaborating and trying to make some of these larger sample sizes happen. I think this is one of the great examples where we're not going to figure this out nine subjects at a time. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> we, for sure. No. We can't treat this like creatine and bench press. We, we got to collaborate and, and put this stuff together. Um, but, man, that's really exciting. Um, it's probably going to be ages until they're done with that, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, you probably won't see any data out of that study for, like, you know, eight years or so. But it, it, it'll be pretty cool. And, and they're even having... Um, where it's not one lab, so they're banking all the tissue and you have to apply almost like a grant for tissue samples to run your uh, certain analyses and do sub-studies and stuff. But it, yeah, it should be pretty awesome. So they're going to essentially sell human flesh to the highest bidder, <laughs> is what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that as a challenge. From now on, 
all business proceeds of Stronger by Science are going to go towards buying human flesh and farming out these analyses so we can get the first scoop. That'd be pretty cool. We we know people with the skill set to actually run these analyses. So we we could start like a GoFundMe. Sure. Like, hey, we're trying to buy human tissue. And I'm sure that would be, <laughs> that can't violate their terms of service start, or anything. Start a Patreon account where the, the art we're producing is the acquisition of human tissue samples. That seems like a really good strategy. So, Brandon, just based on what we do know right now, what do seem to be some of the things we currently know that that seem to predict, at least to some degree, uh, whether someone's going to respond well or poorly to training? Oh, yeah. So that's a great question because we, we do have um, a couple. Of course it's a great st- question. Get fucked, Eric. <laughs> Should have had that on the outline. Um, yeah, so there's actually a review. <laughs> Um, that, that, that I'll refer you to and then I'll talk about it, but it's a, it's by uh, Mike Roberts, not, so not me, um, the other Roberts and it summarizes everything really nicely. And one of the things that we kind of know is that uh, those with more satellite cells in their muscles at baseline tend to respond better. Um, so that's a study from things like 2006 or 2007. Um, there's also a good bit of data to show that you know, those with more ribosomes and ribosomes um, kind of are part of muscle protein synthesis, right? So if you have more ribosomes at baseline before you start training, you tend to get a better response in um, hypertrophy outcomes. Uh, I think there's even a study with like androgen receptors from Stu Phillips that the oh, more yeah. androgen re- receptors has a better response, which, you know, a lot of this stuff you're like, yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and then there's one with, uh, capillary content, which, you know, supplies the muscle with blood, which again, you think you have enough of all these things, you're probably prone to respond a little better. That makes sense. Yeah. And when it comes to being in the fortunate position of having all these things in place at baseline, that, that basically is coming down to picking your parents. sounds like, is that right? Yeah, basically. All right. The people that follow Brandon know that he's an expert in muscle physiology. He's got a really uh, extensive skill set when it comes to some of the bench science involved in exercise science. And there was a very relevant study that came out this year by Cody Hahn, a friend of ours. And you covered this in a previous issue of Mass. And uh, why don't you take it from here if you want to just give us a, a... Greg, if you want to give us a little summary of what the study showed. This was a secondary paper published based off of uh, experiment where, where the main results had been published previously. And essentially what they did is they had people train for six weeks with increasing training volume. Um, the biopsies they took were vastus lateralis biopsies. So the only training relevant to that that they were doing was squat training um, training three times a week, building up from, I want to say maybe 12 total sets of 10, uh, with 60% across the week on week one up to maybe 36 sets per week, like pretty close to 40 sets per week of, of squats by week six, uh, took some biopsies, looked at a bunch of various different things, but 
one of the th- well, couple of the things they looked at were um, density of actin and myosin proteins um, and several other things as well. But the density of actin and myosin proteins seemed to decrease in the subjects that showed robust hypertrophy, um, thus leading to the conclusion that they were probably experiencing sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. Or, in other words, an increase in muscle fiber size with a concomitant decrease in the density of contractile proteins. And so, Brandon, given that this uh, this type of work kind of falls within your area of expertise, um, wh- what do you make of this paper? Yeah, so... I, I, you know, probably th- even three or four years ago, um, I wasn't sure about sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. Uh, there just wasn't a whole lot of data. Um, there, you know, there are some older papers, and we we wrote about that um, in the review that um, Cody led, and I, I do I really like Cody and, and Mike Roberts over at Auburn. Um, so, so I'm I'm not sure what to make of it, but it does make sense. And when he first, we were first chatting about this data, um, I was like, okay, well, obviously it's, it's like glycogen changes, right? So, you know, they, then they were like, well, actually, no, there are not really any glycogen changes, changes in any of the, in the responder status. And I'm like, okay, um, well, what about mitochondria, right? Maybe these people are doing 60% 1RM, that's a little more of what you would consider metabolic, maybe. Um, maybe they're adapting more through the metabolic pathways than straight um, kind of myosin and actin changes. And lo and behold, that's not it either. And they, they actually used a number of different measures to look at these changes. Um, and so... You know, they kept scraping and scraping and they did some proteomics, which I've done proteomics and I actually today for fun, I reanalyzed their data and I was like, no, this is like super legit. Um, and I, I just think that, you know, muscle is really plastic and this is totally feasible. Like I've seen it in enough studies now and kind of wrap my head around it that maybe this is something that happens so that, um, the, or an adaptation to the nucleus to be able to get message like out or in easier or less easy. And then it adapts afterwards to make it more easy. So the myonuclear domain theory kind of playing in there. Um, or maybe it's a long-term adaptation. I'm, I'm not really sure, but I would like to see, and, and as this is me as a scientist, just, you know, Hey, I always want to see more. Um, I'd like to see like a, a longer term study, maybe with a not a more reasonable exercise prescription, but something more people would do. How about that? Yeah, because I mean, toward the end of that program, they were doing a significant amount of work per session. Like it, it looked pretty brutal. Yeah, yeah, that that would put me on the floor for sure. Yeah, I think I think I want to say they were doing either twelve or fourteen sets of ten twice per week. And like, yeah, it was only 60% one rep max, but still like you're talking about doing 120, 140 squats per session. Like unless you're talking about an empty bar, that's going to be hard. Yeah. Yeah. So Greg, I think your take, generally speaking from the study was that it was 
fairly solid evidence that sarcoplasmic hypertrophy was occurring, but the thing that's a little bit uncertain is what is the functional utility of that and is there any way to kind of target that response? Is that an accurate summary of that? Pretty much, yeah. Brandon, are are you kind of, do you have the same viewpoint of this paper that it looks like we're we're focusing in on some evidence that relates to sarcoplasmic hypertrophy occurring? Yeah, yeah. I feel, I mean, I feel pretty confident. I've, so I've done all of these assays that they, they, they did. And the only caveat, right, in this paper, this follow-up paper, is the sample size. So I, you know, it's easy, low-hanging fruit. But, you know, you do have to look at the data and you say, okay, well, there's a little bit of variability that looks like maybe a couple guys were going up, a couple guys were going down. Um, but that's just me being super picky. So, I mean, my, my take on this whole thing is that if you're asking the question of can sarcoplasmic hypertrophy exist, like, like is it a phenomenon that can occur, really all you need to disprove that something can't happen is a case where where it happens so like this study reported significant mean differences but they were kind of like high-ish p-value so below 0.05 but not too far below but there were quite a few individuals who had very substantial decreases in actin and myosin density so unless we are laboring under the assumption that there was very, very large measurement error in every single one of those individuals. At least one of them experienced sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. So, like, I feel like just, you know, one example is enough to establish that a phenomenon exists. And then the next question is, you know, how common is it? Can we purposefully bring it about, etc.? But, you know, I, I think that this study was more than sufficient to demonstrate that it is something that can exist and i don't think we necessarily need to see group level changes to be confident in that yeah i mean i i think that's pretty fair it, it i've never really thought of it that way but um yeah that 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 does make sense um and this this there's a lot of evidence in this paper so i i would agree with you there brandon one of the reasons we brought you on uh for this particular interview is because we know you've got uh, a really extensive sleep article in the works. And uh, sleep has been something that I think Greg and I are both pretty fascinated in because we uh, have generally terrible sleep habits and are intrigued by how they ruin our lives. So first things first, why exactly do we sleep? Why is it so important to us as organisms? Um, well, if you if you don't sleep, you die. Eric, but <laughs> outside of that, um, I don't know that we, we have an exact reason. I, I know that it restores, you know, a lot of our systems, endocrine and metabolic, it's critical for learning. Um, so it does a lot of different things. Uh, so I'll just kind of leave it at that and say that sleep does a lot of good. Um, but I don't know that there's one unified theory of hey, we need sleep because of this. My kind of simple statement is we need sleep because of we will die if we don't have it. When it comes to, you know, a, a more focused look at sleep, obviously um, 
subjectively, one would think that poor sleep would impact performance and maybe even have negative effects on body composition. What, what does the research tell us about how sleep plays in with performance in athletic tasks? Yeah, so it looks like, and I, I, I was kind of shocked when I saw this, but in an acute setting, so right, if you, if you have restricted sleep for one night or something and you just have a bad night of sleep or maybe you pull an all-nighter, um, acute strength at least is not really affected. Um, it's really only until the second or third night of kind of restricted sleep. And even at that, you have to have quite restricted sleep, like four or five hours to where you'll see um, strength performance changes. But when you look at other outcomes, like for athletes that are important, like reaction time or judgment or things like that, um, it's pretty much one bad night of sleep can make a difference. Um, you know, there's there's studies that also look at like kind of motor learning and, and a bad night of sleep can affect how you learn a task, which makes sense. Um, so, yeah, you can you can have some pretty big detriments from it. And what about effects on body composition? I mean, if you're chronically sleeping poorly, how might that carry over into your physique? Yeah, so there, there's a number, actually, I think there's, I don't know, there's probably two or three studies on uh, body composition. And what ends up happening is if you're trying to lose weight, um, you end up losing less body fat than you would hope and losing more muscle in the process of dieting basically. So if you're, if you're sleep restricted and on a diet, you tend to lose more muscle. Um, there are a few metabolic changes that happen. Um, so body composition is affected by a lot of things. When you have reduced sleep, your appetite and hunger go up, right? So maybe that affects your body composition through energy intake. There's a, a number of studies that show you know, you're more prone to have snacks and high fatty foods and, and those are you know easier to consume at high doses. So, um, yeah, it can definitely play a role in body composition, especially over the long term. One of the things that's always troubled me is, you know, we're both bodybuilders. And when you're doing a contest prep, like you mentioned, low sleep is associated with, you know, less fat loss and more loss of lean mass. And so when you're prepping for a bodybuilding show, you're thinking, okay, I definitely want to optimize my sleep to avoid that. Um, and fun fact, the more you're asleep, the less you're awake to try to eat, which is a pretty cool <laughs> thing. But for me, I know whenever I get really deep into prep, I struggle severely trying to get a good night's sleep. Uh, if I can get four or five hours in a row, I'm thrilled with that. Did you, in the process of writing this article, have you gotten any information or, or found any kind of evidence about why that is? Like why when we're super lean and energy restricted, why does it become so hard to get sleep? Um, so I, I'm going to explain this simply because I have not found um, great evidence. Although, you know, there's the one bodybuilding study um, that shows re kind of not reduced sleep, but... Uh, poor sleep habits, we'll call it. But, you know, as far as I can tell, um, I think it's almost a drive to eat is keeping you awake at some point, right? It, it, the, the idea that maybe your body is trying to scavenge for food, um, even though you're just sitting there. Um, 
so I have not found any kind of good hormonal evidence other than, you know, the, the appetite stuff. Um, but yeah, there's just not a whole lot out there. Now we, we see that with rodent models, right? Like when you, um, when, when you restrict their food intake and you underfeed them, their activity level actually goes up because they, they kind of start like freaking out and foraging around for food, right? Yeah, yeah. And we've, so I've actually done a few nutrient deprivation studies in rodents and they, they run around their cages and they pull on their, um, their cage tabs and make a lot of noise. So yeah, we, we do have that. And I didn't get too much into the the rodent literature in this um, article because I just it, you know it's kind of for more for humans and general population stuff. Um, but I'll have to take a look at that because I'm actually working on a, another article of equal length yeah. <laughs> already. <laughs> I mean, it, it's fascinating stuff. Now, getting a little bit more practical with it, are are there people who just need less sleep than others, or do we all need that kind of standard eight hours, give or take? Um, well, I think, or I would, you know, we hope that we need less sleep than others, right? You're sitting here and you're, and you're like, yeah, we average maybe six hours a night or something. And, and there's this little bit of hope in you that's like, no, nah, there's, that's fine. I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I'm different. Um, but it doesn't really seem like that's the case. There are, um, some people who have a spe- specific gene, um, I think it's called DE2C, who get by on less sleep, but even that's like 6.5 hours. Um, so not really. <laughs> uh, I think what happens is people just adjust to reduce sleep by kind of the lack of um, an, eff- not an effect, but they don't realize that they're sleep deprived. And so they adapt so they're, to that they're feeling. They're like underperforming you know, whether it's in terms of their energy level, their cogn- their cognitive level, performance, whatever, that's just their new baseline. Like they're used to being underslept. Yes, exactly. And, and what one of the things that happens when you don't sleep enough is your self-evaluation of your performance starts becoming increasingly less accurate. So there was a study, I can't remember exactly what they were measuring, but I remember they had people sleeping six hours per night for I think five or six nights in a row and they saw that on the tasks that they were measuring them on performance dropped off pretty linearly day after day after day after day so you know they were worse on day two than day one worse on day three than day two worse on day four than day three etc but when they asked the subjects how do you think you're performing they accurately said they thought they were worse on day two than day one but from that point on, they thought that, oh, yeah, I'm about the same as I was yesterday. So they had like <laughs> five days where they were performing worse and worse and worse and thought that they were still performing about as well as they did with just one night of six hours of sleep. So they're like a drunk person doing karaoke. They're like, yeah, I think I nailed that. I think I did pretty all right. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Now, so a lot of times you ask that question and the, the you answer under like, under the kind of perspective, when you ask, does everybody need the same amount of sleep? You think, can I get away with less? But let me ask that question a slightly different way. Do athletes need more sleep than the general public? Yeah. So it's kind of the recommendations in the literature for athletes are like eight to nine hours. Um, 
And it doesn't seem, and I'll say anecdotally too, it, it doesn't seem like more sleep is detrimental, especially for someone who's, you know, a high level athlete. Um, so I would, I would say they need more and let them have as much as they want. One of the things, one of just like the lay press articles, I think that stuck with me the most in recent years is, uh, so I'm a really big NBA fan and the NBA has a famously tough travel schedule. Um, like even though they play about half as many games as baseball players do, they're rarely doing, you know, back to backs or like three games in the same city in a stand or whatever. Like they're always flying coast to coast. And so one of the problems with the NBA is like huge drop offs in performance and big increases in injury risk as the season wears on. And there was an interview with, um, like trainers and strength coaches from several NBA teams. And one of the things they mentioned was that, in their opinion, the biggest change in the NBA that was helping players, you know, stay injury free and still perform well into the playoffs was the invention of Tinder. Because prior to Tinder, uh, you know, you're in another city, uh, you just played a game, you, you want to have. Uh, you want to have some fun with whatever people you're attracted to after the game. You have to go to the bar, chat with people, bring them back to your room, etc. With Tinder, they could just like basically have an assistant hit up people on Tinder and say like, "Hey, want to come back to my room after the game?" And that like streamlined the process. They estimated that it let people that it let the players get about an extra hour or two of sleep after away games because they weren't having to go out and chat up girls at the bar. Uh, and they were like, yeah, that's honestly been making such a big difference as the season has worn on, um, <laughs> which I think is super cool. And, and the, the other thing that... So another thing that I've noticed is that we're seeing a lot more athletes than we used to perform really well really late into their careers. And oftentimes those athletes, at least anecdotally, report that they sleep a ton. So like LeBron James is still playing better basketball than anyone his age has any right to play. Uh, and during the season, I think he says he sleeps like 10 or 11 hours a night in general. Um, Roger Federer is playing better tennis than anyone his age has ever played in the modern era. Um, he says he sleeps between 10 and 12 hours a night. My favorite is Paula Radcliffe, uh, who I believe still holds the female world record in the marathon, famously slept 14 hours a day. Uh, she would sleep 10 hours a night, get up, run, nap four hours through the day, get up, run again, wind down a little bit in the evening, sleep another 10 hours, repeat the process. So I, I, I wonder, I wonder, one of the things I've noticed looking at the literature is like, there's only what you, you'd know this better than me, maybe three or four studies looking at sleep extension in athletes. And they tend to find really positive results. But I, I wonder if we actually do know kind of where that upper end lies, like the recommendations, like you said, are eight to nine hours a night. But I, I do wonder, especially for really, really high performers in really strenuous sports, 
if that's even higher, like up in the 10 plus hour range. Yeah, so there there are a number of studies, and there's actually one just published on sleep extension, um, where they essentially try to increase sleep by like two hours per night, assuming they're just like getting seven hours, and they all find marked like pretty big improvements in performance. And, and um, I think that's probably true that, you know, nine to 10 hours is probably more likely. Um, so I, I didn't realize you're a huge NBA fan because I'm also a ridiculously big NBA fan and my podcast and my, um, just to segue for a second, my pod- podcasts are like half NBA, half fitness. Hell <laughs> so yeah. I enjoy that, that tangent. Well, Greg is really just a, a Tinder fan and Tinder brought him to the NBA. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're going to you're going to get me in trouble because I was married before Tinder was invented. <laughs> so uh let's make sure we get this episode up before Lindsay has a chance to listen to it. Yeah, we can do that. <laughs> so on the topic of sleep, um one of the things that comes up a lot is the idea of chronotypes. So uh, some people being more night owls, other people being more early risers. So can you give us like a brief description of what chronotype chronotypes are and then how they essentially matter in relation to sleep? Yeah, so um, chronotypes are basically your preference on when you like to sleep and complete your activity. Um, so that's a whole lot of nothing. But um, early morning or early types uh, basically prefer to do stuff in the morning. They wake up earlier where kind of the later chronotypes uh, like are based in the evening, right? So it it makes sense. Most people actually though, they fall somewhere in the middle. Um, So true morning types are like 15% and true evening types are, there's only like 15% of the population. Um, and then what was the second part of your question? <laughs> and so, so 70% of the people kind of fall in the middle. But but so the research does kind of indicate that this is a real biological thing. It's not just kind of a social construct of people who say, ah, I just don't like going to bed early. I mean, we, we can identify these people and, and they truly do function better when they're aligned with their preferred chronotype. Yeah. So as, as far as I can tell from the literature, that is true. And you could even take a, so in my, my article, I have like a, a link for an automated quiz. Um, so I took it and I'm kind of a, I think I was an early morning type. Um, but I, I also think there is some social construct to it. Um, maybe a little bit at least. And so ha- have you looked at any studies that attempt to shift people? away from their preferred chronotype yeah that's that's what i'm interested in like how how plastic are chronotypes or like to what degree are they hardwired honestly i did not see any of those i don't that not that they don't exist but i didn't look for any chronotype shifting but uh overall there's kind of this idea and and i'll replace this with that question that um people who play certain sports better have a certain chronotype and i don't i don't know if that's true but um i would definitely be interested to kind of adapt some of these chronotypes see what happens now that you've looked at some of the literature on chronotypes do you find it really weird when people brag about waking up early um yeah because i've never understood that like i i guess that maybe it's because i don't work on like a normal work schedule anymore but when people are like yeah i woke up at four in the morning i'm like well 
guess what? I stayed up till three. (laughs) (laughs) We both had quite a day, didn't we? Mine just was darker at the end. Yeah. And I, so with some of the undergrads that I used to mentor in, um, during my PhD, they would always feel bad because like we would get to the lab early, like, you know, six 30 or something ridiculous. And they would come in at like 10 or so. And they're like, yeah, I just got out of bed. I made it here, you know, best I could. And I'm like, uh, well, don't feel bad. Like how late were you up last night? I'm like, oh, I don't know, like two or three. And I'm like, well, you, so you're just shifting your day backwards. Like that's totally okay for most people, especially in college. Yeah. All all the people who are like really stoked about themselves for waking up at like four or five in the morning. It's like at 8 PM, they're functionally useless. (laughs) They're all like (laughs) asleep before the sun sets in the summer. So I had a question for you. you. You hear a lot of mixed opinions about this. A topic that comes up a lot in sleep is napping. Um, are naps advisable? I mean, do they help you recover from a lack of sleep? Um, so I would say naps are always a good thing as far as I've read. Um, and that's, there are a ton of studies on naps. There, there aren't as many studies looking at performance in naps, but I think they're enough to say, even if it's just from a learning perspective or, trying to maybe catch up a little bit on sleep as long as it doesn't interrupt your other sleep. So like your, your nighttime sleep, um, I've seen no detrimental effects of, of naps. Now there's gotta be a point where at some point the nap, if it's long enough in duration, it probably, probably would start interfering with your nighttime sleep. Wouldn't you think? Yeah. And there's some studies that have tried to figure out like, okay, we know naps are good. That's been established for a while. Let's try to figure out what the best nap length is. Um, And most of them, you know, it's like 10 to 20 minutes. Um, Ideally, and this is kind of funny, the the best time to take a nap is when you're sleepy right after lunch, right? So that you have that uh, postprandial dip uh, that hits at at the office or, you know, wherever you're at. But if you're not going to do what seems to be like a 10 to 20 minute nap, getting in a full sleep cycle, so like 90 minutes, um, seems to be the best other alternative. Uh, Now, there's not many studies with using that kind of uh, method, but I'm sure, like like you said, if you nap for three hours, then you're probably not doing something good later. Aren't there some cultures that kind of build a short nap into the middle of the day? Yeah, that's a siesta dog. Yeah, I thought so, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. How long is a siesta typically? Do we know? I don't know. I'm not culturally illiterate. I, I barely <laughs> I understand like America outside of the South. Oh man, you and me both. What were you saying, Brandon? You think it's? Uh, I think it's. I think it's sixty to ninety minutes. I think that's pretty normal. I, I'm not entirely sure that you know the siesta is, or the time in cultures that's spent in between the day when it's you know really hot for three hours is all slant are spent fully sleeping, but I'm sure like 90, 90 60, 90 minutes is reasonable. Is that the intended purpose is just cause it's so hot during the middle of the day? Um, I'm, I'm going to stretch myself or stop myself and say, I, I'm also not as culturally uh, literate as I should be before I embarrass myself. <laughs> are, 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 are you trying to tell me that we are not the three ideal people 
to discuss the cultural phenomenon of the siesta. I feel like if I, I resent the implication. <laughs> if three people are going to discuss siestas and the finer points of Spanish culture, I feel like we might as well take a stab at it. I feel like I'm entitled to that at least. All right. So the concept of sleep debt. What is sleep debt? And can it be repaid? So sleep debt is just the kind of accumulated um, debt of sleep. So you have reduced sleep for a number of days. Maybe you're, you know, you're traveling or you're studying or you're preparing a bit project or something. Um, and it can be repaid, but it can't be repaid all at once. Um, so generally, well, I won't say generally, there are a few different studies, but it looks like it takes a few days. And the best way to kind of pay off your sleep debt is to um, not set an alarm clock and just sleep until you kind of naturally wake up for a few days in a row, uh, which sounds terrifying to me because I'm like super structured. Um, But that seems to be the best way to kind of normalize your sleep debt back out. So I think the only way you can really do that is if you're on vacation maybe or something. But um, I, I have also read that it's recommended and I, this kind of makes sense to catch up on sleep during the weekend to repair some of your, or repay some of your sleep debt. You use the phrase there, don't set an alarm and, and just kind of sleep naturally for a few days in a row. Um, Greg would take that literally. I, I, it's not outside <laughs> the realm of possibility that he would sleep for a few days in a row. He has done some pretty wild things in terms of staying up for frankly implausible numbers of hours and days so if there was ever a case study on developing a sleep debt and then correcting it the things i've seen you do greg are impressed like i'm not picking on you i am i'm in awe of what you've pulled off in terms of sleep cycles the longest i've ever slept in one clip uninterrupted is about 18 hours oh 18 hours is a long stretch of time so basically you're like a bear, like you're super strong and you have the ability to sleep for long periods. So on the topic of bears, we were actually talking about this earlier. <laughs> we, we, um, this is true. We were talking about bears like three hours ago. Yeah. So really, really cool study that I saw maybe three or four months ago is uh, so when bears hibernate, they produce a a hormonal and metabolic milieu uh, to help. <laughs> what do you know? I know nothing about siestas, and my French pronunciation is dog shit. But just, just pronounce it in the Americanized way. I, I don't know the Americanized way. Whatever. You, you, you got a, a blend of hormones and shit. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> Uh, anyway, so bears, they're obviously, (laughs) Eric's fucking losing it over here. I I have a very hard time talking when someone's laughing in my presence. Anyways, so, uh, (laughs) God damn it. So bears hibernate, obviously during that time, they're not incredibly active. They're not eating all that much, but when spring rolls around, they need to be able to find food and have the energy to, to copulate. Um, and so they need to maintain as much muscle tissue as possible. So they produce 
a bunch of hormones and have a bunch of other proteins in their blood to help promote um, maintenance of muscle tissue with extreme decreases in activity. And so there was a study where they extracted hibernating bear serum and treated muscle fibers with it in vitro. And it caused like legitimately like steroid like effects. Um, And so I think that's pretty sick because one, I want to know who had the cojones to how is my pronunciation on that one, Eric? That was good. That was Hell good. yeah. So they had the cojones to uh, extract serum or, well, I guess blood from hibernating bears, which I want to know who pulled the short straw for that one. And then two, it makes me interested. I'd be very interested if it became like one, if it worked in vivo and two, if it became mass produced, because I feel like that is the most alpha move that someone could possibly pull if uh, like untested lifters were discussing their stacks. Someone's like, oh yeah, like I, I pin some trend, pop some D ball. Some, someone else would come up and be like, dude, I fucking inject serum co- collected from hibernating bears. Get on my fucking level. I feel like that would be the most alpha ergogenic that someone could possibly take. Um, so anyway, that's re- that's really all I have to say about bears. It would be natural and therefore quite healthy, one would have to assume. Uh, so it came from nature. Here here's a hard here's a hard turn. Brandon, do you know anything about acto vegan? I do not. I well, sorry to say that. So What's this word? Acto vegan, A C T O V E G I N. Not familiar. So on the topic of injecting serum from animals into oneself um so acto vegan is commonly like the street name for it is calf's blood and much like bears need to preserve muscle during hibernation calves obviously need to grow a tremendous amount very quickly uh to become big cows uh i think that's the technical term (laughs) and So what they do is they take blood from calves, spin it down, remove the red blood cells, and apparently it's very rich in hormones and growth factors. And apparently if like American athletes are doing off-season training in Europe, it is probably so they can get acto-vegan injections um, because it's legal in, in some places in Europe, but not in the US. And apparently it's one of those things with very little research on it, but that elite athletes swear by, but don't swear by too publicly because um, even though it's not technically outlawed by anti-doping authorities, there's uh, like a stipulation in WADA's code where it's basically like, you know, we listed the things that are explicitly illegal and, but we reserve the right to say that something is against the rules. If it is a, like patently clear uh, attempt to gain some sort of advantage by injecting something into your body. Like it, it's just a, a very broad catch-all. So there, it's kind of, of, of dubious legality under the WADA code. Um, but I, th- I also think that's super interesting because, you know, it's not something that people are making in a lab. It's just fucking get some blood from calves, spin it down and inject it into humans and hope for the best. And apparently it's fairly widespread. 
So we're keeping an eye out for bear extract and baby calf extract, it sounds like. Correct. I have a, I have a, one of my friends that I did my PhD with uh, is actually working at USADA now. Um, So I have to run that one by him and ask him about it. That would be interesting. I'd love to talk to somebody from WADA or USADA. Um, All right, Brandon, we've got a, a final question here about sleep. So you did this deep dive in the literature, wrote a really long comprehensive article about sleep. In the process of doing your lit review and writing the article, have you changed anything about the way you approach sleep or your current sleep habits? Yeah. So that, that was one of the perks, um, is that two major things changed. One, um, I basically slept an extra probably hour and a half. So I'm like at a solid eight hours a night. Um, and two, my wife loves naps and I used to give her a hard time about it and I no longer do that. So she was, was like, she was right and you were wrong. Yeah. And yeah. you apologized? I, I definitely had to. Definitely. Okay. Very good. <laughs> we do have a question that we like to ask a lot of our guests, uh, especially who are more on the sciencey side of things. Do Are there any training or nutrition practices that you personally believe very strongly in? that either there's no research to support or possibly even that there is research against that just based on your own experiences or experiences with clients, you still think is good stuff. Oh man. Um, so I, I, I will give you a kind of like a brief summary. So I, I think there are a lot of things you can get from video, um, basically form stuff, not the big three, but just like, dumbbell curls and random accessories that people do um, that can make a pretty big difference in kind of activation that probably haven't been shown yet. Um, or maybe they have, there's like one study. Um, so like lat pull downs, right? A lot of people do the overhand grip and just, I have most of my athletes switch to a neutral grip and it, you know, I don't know that there's any evidence that that's like better for her hypertrophy or whatnot, but most of them report back that like, Oh my gosh, that's so much better. So yeah, there's one for you, but yeah, I have a couple of them. You know, I, I agree with you on that one. Um, you know, I, I've got like a slight imbalance between my lats and that kind of forced me to start doing my lat pull downs unilaterally one arm at a time. And just in switching over to that, my, my grip naturally became more neutral with a single handle and I, I, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with your clients and with you in, in the sense that that neutral grip lat pull down is, is wild, man. I, I, I recommend that all the time. Have you guys played around with ring pull-ups very much? No, I have not. No. So I, I think you guys may enjoy that. Um, or so the, the drawback with rings is that they swing obviously, which can be annoying, um, one of the few like late night infomercial fitness products that I've tried that is actually good, uh, is there was this thing they advertised like maybe 10 years ago called the perfect pull up. Um, and it was the same general type of thing, but instead of a ring, it was just, you know, like a flat handle, um, the same way that like a cable crossover handle would be, uh, but it would rotate or it, it allowed you to rotate as you did pull ups and, the the thing is like 
like a underhand grip is a very natural position to be in at the top of a pull-up. And an overhand grip is a very natural position to be in at the bottom of a pull-up. And I agree that if you just have a fixed bar, neutral grip is great. But a lot of people either prefer neutral grip or the ability to like change from pronation to supination throughout a rep. Um, and, and rings, rings are a really good option if a gym has rings, but not a place to do neutral grip pull-ups. I'll put that one in my back pocket for later. Yeah, I'll have to look into, I think my gym does have a ring setup, but I've never, uh, wandered over there. It's worth playing with. It feels a little bit too functional for me. Once, once there's <laughs> rings involved, you know, I like my hammer strength stuff. I like to go straight 1980s bodybuilding if I can. That's fair. Well, Brandon, thanks so much for making time for us. Um, I know you're a busy guy. You got a lot of stuff going on. We really appreciate your time. Um, it's been really great talking to you about all these different aspects of exercise science that you've got expertise in. Uh, before we let you go, um, if people want to stay in touch with you, if people want to see what you're up to, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I do, I actually found a, a home for my article and that's going to be at the uh, JPS uh, fitness website. Um, Very nice. But apart, apart from that, um, you can contact me through the strength guys where I do my coaching. Um, I have some semblance of like a website at fitnessandphysiology.com and then Facebook and Instagram. I'm trying to do more Instagram stuff, but you know, keeping up with everything's kind of hard. So, and what's your Instagram handle? Uh, so it's brob underscore 21. Very nice. So listeners stay in touch with Brandon. He's always doing cool things, always putting out good information. Uh, Brandon, once again, we want to thank you for your time and we want to wish you good luck in your final competition in a few weeks. All right. Well, thank you guys for having me and keep doing the, the, the good work that you do. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit StrongerByScience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.